Hello, and welcome back to the Mixtape with Scott, a podcast where I delve into the story of the economics profession as told to the personal narratives and untold stories of the people who have devoted their lives to the profession living economists. I am your host, Scott Cunningham. Ordinarily, the interviews are with living economists. Um, this week is different. It is with uh, Dr. William Spriggs, who died June 6, 2023. It's a very special episode, therefore. Uh, we're taking a step back in time to 2019. I was at the American Economics Association's uh, Conference for Mentors and Mentees <clears throat> that summer. I had decided I wanted to start interviewing economists um, and learning their stories. I felt like that was something that was missing. I wasn't sure exactly why I wanted to do it or with whom, um, but I heard, I went to the conference with an iPhone and some mics that I bought online. And as soon as I saw Dr. William Spriggs, who I'd seen before and spoken with a lot on Twitter, I knew that I wanted to make him the first person I interviewed. So I asked him if I could interview him for our project, and he graciously agreed. So for two hours, we talked about his life. Um, if you aren't familiar with Dr. Spriggs, here's some facts. Uh, he was a man with a resume, unlike uh, many economists. Uh, he was an academic and a public servant and uh, um, uh, a person who rallied for uh, justice. <clears throat> he was a professor of economics at Howard University for many years. He was chief economist at the AF AFL-CIO, and he was assistant secretary for the Department of Labor in the Obama administration. His contributions to labor and public policy were instrumental in shaping our understanding, our collective discussion of racial inequality, income inequality, and labor market dynamics, particularly within the profession, uh, but I think more broadly, too. He was a vocal economist, though, uh, about racism, structural racism. He didn't talk about it in the categories that economists talk about it, like Beckerian discrimination or statistical discrimination. He was much more blunt um, that it about its existence and the damage that it did to people's lives and the inequality that it created in this country and also within the profession of economics. He spoke with real courage uh, and so much moral force that I think it made a real impression on everyone who heard him. It definitely did with me. Every now and then there seems to be someone like that in America. And Dr. Spriggs was definitely one of those someones, at least um, within the economics profession right now. Um, we lost him recently. I know that he was beloved by many people. So I'm very grateful that I finally, after a month of searching, found the interview uh, buried in my Dropbox folder uh, makes this conversation, I hope, even more poignant, listening to his insights about his life, his passion, his dedication, it's a reminder of the significant influence in the world of economics and beyond. Um, thank you. I hope that you find this uh, time to listen to Dr. Spriggs' life story and the things he cares about uh, as interesting as I did. Uh, I'm your host, Scott Cunningham. Dr. Spriggs, um, so this is for a uh, series I'm gonna have on YouTube called mm -hmm. What Economists Do. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to have a casual conversation about your life mm -hmm. as it relates to economics. So it's really like about your personal story. So I want people to hear your personal story, but then it veers into the professional mm -hmm. to narrow it down. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I was wondering if we could just start off and you tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, we're just going to start with something kind of easy to talk about. What are some of your fondest specific memories growing up, whether it's adolescence or high school? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I'll give why I ended up being an economist. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, and um, while I was growing up, my father was finishing his PhD in particle physics. Yeah. And my mother was a public school teacher. She started out in Washington as a Head Start teacher and then went into the public school system. Both my parents served. What year would that have been? Uh, my father earned his PhD in 1960. I was born in 1955. Okay. Um, so that's the cauldron in which I was born, Washington of that period. Uh, both my parents had served in World War II. My father was a Tuskegee Airman. Mm. Uh, my wow. mother was a sergeant in the motor pool. Uh, she was a whack. Um, so here's the irony of life. Uh, my father had decided, based on what his high school teachers had told him growing up about the experience of being a soldier in World War I, that they had been drafted, given very short time to prepare, and then were sent overseas. Mm. And n understanding what was brewing in the world when he was growing up, he graduated um, high school in 1942. Mm. Um, he, he fully understood, well, l l let me back up, because he, 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 he finished 1939. Um, fully understanding in 1939 what was happening in the world, he decided he better volunteer because he wanted to be trained ahead of right. <laughs> a war starting. So actually he was in the Army when Pearl Harbor occurred. He had already volunteered. Wow. Um, but because the Army was segregated, uh, they decided that the black troops of the time would fit the segregated Army of the time. Mm. So he actually was a Buffalo soldier, an on honest to God member of the 9th Cavalry. Uh, cavalry with the real cavalry, meaning that he actually was on a mule, not oh my goodness. <laughs> not not in a jeep and not jumping out of parachutes. Wow! Um, and uh, and so he was fascinated by radio, mm. which was the internet of the day sure. when he grew up, and he wanted to be a radio man, and uh, because of his skills. They transferred him from the Calvary to Tuskegee. Uh, and initially, they were at that point training um, an, uh, an African American bomber group. Mm -hmm. So he thought he'd be a radio man for one of the bombers. But his psychological test was no, you're a fighter pilot. Oh. So, so he was trained as a single engine fighter pilot and uh, graduated as a lieutenant, as a single engine fighter pilot. My mother's the sergeant of the motor pool. Oh my goodness. Neither of them could drive a car. <laughs> he could drive a plane, but not a car. Right. <laughs> and my mother was the sergeant of the motor pool, but she couldn't drive a car. Neither of their families owned a car. Oh, wow. At the time they were draft, well, at the time that they um, had signed up for the war. Uh, and my uncle, in the interim, of course, the war years provided more prosperity. My uh, dad's brother uh, could drive a car. The family had a car. So when they were released on, uh, when my dad was released on leave because 
My mom was stationed in his hometown of Des Moines. My uncle would drive them around on their dates because neither of them could drive. Uh -huh. um, but I, I say all that to say, uh, so, so if you can understand the context of um, someone with the bravado to be a fighter pilot, but mm. the, um, the oomph to be a PhD in particle physics. Sure. <laughs> and uh, my mother, in order to graduate from high school, her county, which is now the city of Virginia Beach, but was then the county of Princess Anne, did not have a black high school. Mm. So in order for her to go to high school, her parents had to pay money, put her on a trolley, to go to the city of Norfolk to graduate from high school. Mm. Um, so uh, if you can comprehend that and appreciate um, that, then, then you get the sense of the fortitude, the, the bravery, and the, and the sense of purpose that sure. they had. Hmm. Uh, growing up in a household like that. Wow. Um, every adult in my family served in World War II, hmm. including not just my mother, but my aunt. Uh, her sister was sent overseas after we lost her, my mother's brother, hmm. who was uh, lost uh, uh, in Normandy in July, right oh, after wow. the D-Day invasion. Uh, and my aunt was one of the few uh, members of the 6888, this is all black female unit that was sent overseas, the only all female unit deployed. There were other women who were deployed, but they were part of a male unit. So, you know, there were nurses who were deployed, there were communications people who were deployed, but they were part of a male unit. So they didn't have, they weren't a uh, full battalion. Mm -hmm. So. That means that they didn't have their own MPs, they didn't have their own motor pool, they, those were male jobs. They, but this unit, the 6888, this was a battalion, this was all women. Uh, and, and she was deployed uh, in late 40, 44 um, after D-Day. The mail had piled up, because as you can imagine, <laughs> they're ripping across Europe, and the last thing they thought about was, Who's going to deliver the mail? Sure. Um, so it piled up at a warehouse in England. Oh, wow. And they sent over these black women to sort it out. Okay. Which, uh, you know, you say, oh, yeah, sorted mail. But remember that Americans of the time period well, were kept in the dark about their men. They just knew there was an APO box and you just send it. So, uh, you sent it to Paul Jones. <laughs> right. And so they, this was, yeah, they weren't just sorting into addresses. They were figuring out how these people Yes, were. which Paul Jones? Right. <laughs> which John Smith? Right. <laughs> right? Wow. So this is not simple it's to not do. Trivial. Yeah, to try and make sure it was going to go to the right Paul Jones, the right, right, right. John Smith. It's um, important work, but you don't really, but a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah. And, um, they cleared this huge backlog in very short order uh, while they were in England, and then as soon as uh, northern, northern France was secured, then they um, sent them over to Wiens, and uh, after reclaiming Paris, they were sent to Paris. So, so what I'm saying, you know, my entire, I mean, I, I mean including the women. Um, I had an uncle who was in the Philippines, and 
another uncle who fortunately lived through um, being in the European theater and came home. Well, so what values did, does that create for a young man growing up in a sort of a legacy in a family like that mm -hmm. in you? Well, um, a deep optimism about the country, mm. very deep optimism about the country. Because uh, remember when my dad came home to use his GI Bill, uh, even though he was from Iowa, he came to Virginia where my mother was from. Uh, he could not go to the University of Virginia. Mm. It was, it, they did not allow their African Americans was, to. Their school was still segregated. There. Right. So, um, so you just have to understand the optimism that it takes right. to have served your country in war. And to continue to <laughs> overcome those kinds of obstacles and believe that you're capable of such a of such thing as well, the to, highest level of science. Well, but to believe in your country. Right. Which is not telling you fully thank you. Mm. <laughs> We're glad you risked your life for us. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, Do you feel like you internalized that kind of optimism? Yeah. Okay. No. no. Absolutely. Oh, you had. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What does it look like in your life? Uh, I mean, the fact that I've served in government, and um, I'm proud when I represent the United States. I still think uh, the among the bigger highlights of my career have been representing the United States and being in some international forum and understanding that I'm speaking on behalf of the United States, and to have someone call on me, the United States. You know, it's a big deal. Feels yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I I believe in policies that benefit all Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that comes out of that upbringing. Right. Um, so I I have no stomach though for people to say you know load or leave it. It's like no, you don't. You have not earned the right to say that. Right. You serve in a segregated army. Right. You come home to segregation. Then you've earned the right to tell me love it or leave it. Right. But the rest of y'all shut up. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't have. I don't have the stomach for it. Right. So. Um, so that that that's the background. A, a belief that the country can live up to everything that it promises. Mm. That this is a country that has the ability to be the best and a belief that it will be the best and can be the best, and those are American values. So that's, that's what I think people should sort of understand from growing up in a household like that. Um, but Washington at the time, or this is the height of the Civil Rights Movement, mm. I, I, I tell my students they think of athletes as heroes, but you, you know, I, I remind them when I was growing up in Washington, the senators were still totally a segregated team. They were all white, the baseball team at the time. The Redskins, the football team was all segregated. Mm. Uh, the owner of the Redskins, in fact, traded away the first draft, first round draft. He didn't want to have to be forced to draft the Heisman Trophy winner, oh. Ernie Davis, who was lauded as the best running back ever from Syracuse. And mind you, Ernie graduated after Jim Brown. So when people say this was the greatest back, this is the greatest back compared to Jim Brown. Right, right. And he didn't want him. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like, I don't want to integrate my team 
I'm going to trade away the first round draft choice. Wow. Because <laughs> wow. I don't want them. Yeah. So, um, so it's not like I grew up in a time when, when black athletes were flooding the world as role models, except that they were breaking barriers and the view of them actually wasn't the way we view them today. Mm -hmm. They were very much civil rights uh, icons because it was clear they were breaking racial barriers. Right. It wasn't like um, uh, you're going to spend all your time on the basketball court because you think you're going to be LeBron James. Right. Um, you you understood that, y yeah, you and two other people. <laughs> right. It's a uh, long fight. It's a long. You grew fight. up in a long fight. You know, right. You must have. You have to have a long horizon to to be able to handle that. Well, because you know, I I had, uh, you know, this unique opportunity of this window, where my grandparents, my grand, both my grandfathers, um, were uh, janitors. Uh, my 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 mother's father was a gardener. My um, grandfather, for whom I'm named, uh, had been a janitor, um, and yet here are their kids. Uh -huh. One a PhD in physics, and the other this wonderful public school teacher right. uh, in an integrated school. And we would move back later to my mother's hometown, and here she is, this wonderful school teacher in an integrated school system. Right. So, so I fully understood the. This is a huge distance, and and not only my parents' world, but then my parents' world compared to their parents. But the heroes of the day were these civil rights leaders, and fortunately for me, I grew up on a very on a very unique street. So uh, there was my dad next door to us was my pediatrician, mm -hmm. and next door was the chair of the math department at Howard University. And his wife was a law professor at Howard, and these lawyers were my heroes mm. um, because I fully knew that every time somebody said, "Oh, this is the first black person to get this job," or "This is the first black person to move in that neighborhood," or "This is the first time black people have been able to ride, you know, this streetcar," it was because those lawyers were either taught at Howard graduated from Howard or were faculty members at Howard, had won some lawsuit, right. <laughs> and as a result of those lawsuits, all these things were happening, and the, the, the black newspaper of the day, this is, you know, front page news, you know. Mm -hmm. First, you know, they would have some young black woman who was, you know, a clerk at some department store. And, right. You know, she would be a hero for, you know, her five minutes of fame was she got hired as a clerk at a department store, which is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be like them, <laughs> mm -hmm. for like uh, b breaking barriers, or I wanted to be a civil person. rights lawyer. <laughs> right. I understood they were the ones making it happen, and okay. I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. Well, um, so you were. Th this was college, or, or even before college, you're thinking no, I want to be a lawyer. When I was little, little. Okay. These were the people I, because this law professor lived down the street. These are the people I grew up around. This is what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, then when it came time for high school, for leaving high school, going to college, that's what I still wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, but this family friend um, said, we already won all the cases. Like, <laughs> you, you have no value added here. We already desegregated the schools at this point. Um, you know, they, 
the swine case had already been ruled. Busing had already obliterated segregation. They had torn down the final vestiges as I was entering mm -hmm. middle school uh, of, of, of segregation. So you experienced busing firsthand when you were little? Yes. Um, because we moved from Washington. Washington integrated its school system almost immediately. It was not exactly a member of the Brown case. There were a couple of companion cases that were a little different, hinged on a different part of the law. Um, the Brown decisions were on equal protection. The D.C. case was on a slightly different issue, and the Delaware case was a slightly different issue. D.C. gave in. Um, so when I started uh, kindergarten in 60, hmm. um, D.C. had already desegregated. Okay. But, my, but my neighborhood, which had been white when we moved in, the three of us, <laughs> quickly became all black. And, and actually, my elementary school, I think there were maybe four white families left. Right. Um, but when we moved to Norfolk, um, when I was in the sixth grade, they were still doing massive resistance. So what the, uh, the initial response in Virginia was they shut down the public school system. Oh, wow. With, in regards to busing? Yeah, well, yes, they're, they're because their, their refusal was, we're not going to integrate schools. Right. And our answer is, that's because we don't have them. Easy uh, solution there. You just that, get rid of the, you solve the problem just by getting yes, rid of it. Yes. If, if you're saying equal protection means that if we give people public education that has to be integrated, right. fine, we won't have public education yeah. solved. Right. <laughs> Which, of course, wasn't solved because uh, there are too many poor whites in Virginia. They realized. So a lot of private schools opened up? Lots of private schools opened up. I grew up, up in a town in Mississippi where, that, where there was the Brookhaven Academy and it was, you know, had that history. Yeah, so uh, they they gave up on that rather quickly in some counties. Uh, other counties, Prince Edward County gave, gave up uh, way late. They, they they left their schools shut way into the 60s. Wow. But, but the other school districts operated under what they called freedom of choice. Mm. So um, their thing was our schools aren't segregated if a black student wants to attend a white school, we will let them. Okay. Um, but they continue to operate dual systems. So the teachers had a separate pension fund. The, um, the school systems had separate leagues. So the black students did not, um, the black high schools didn't play the white high schools. Mm. Uh, and in fact, the movie, Remember the Titans, was very misleading. Oh, really? about what the plot was. Uh, they portrayed what happened as only T.C. Williams integrated. And they were the only integrated team in Virginia. That was not the truth at all at mm -hmm. the time. Um, what was unique to T.C. Williams was they kept the black coach. Mm. And um, they kept him because he was so talented? Or was that some sort of compliance with external pressure? No. Um, I'm not sure all of what went into that decision because in all other instances, they got rid of the black coaches. Okay. He was unique because 
not only did they keep him as a coach, kept his staff. but they kept him as the head coach. Oh, okay. And, and the movie made a big deal about the friction caused by him being the head coach. Yeah. But if, if the movie had been fair, you would have understood the context in which that occurred because in everywhere else, in Fairfax County and the city of, well, Arlington County, um, the black coaches disappeared. Mm. Not even as assistant coaches, they disappeared. They were assigned to other With the integration of the schools, they got rid of the African-American coaches. Because they were in any school system, right? That's the man with authority. That is an authority figure, right? And when you look at most high schools, principals come from football coaches. I mean, this this is disproportionately the channel by which you get to be a high school principal. Right. Um, and and so that was missing the movie. Uh, further missing from the movie was. Um, because the players lost their coaches, though this is picked up in the movie a little bit, right, is the issue of like, who's gonna be quarterback? Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, who will have these skilled position roles? Yeah. Um, and if the movie had been fair about it, they would have let you understand that, yes, these other schools, they are integrated, but there's a difference between... There was a shuffling of African-American sort of down yes on the same team but not in the skill positions or exactly and things like that exactly right. and uh, in the end and mm. this gets to the the schools didn't play each other these were separate leagues the Virginia High School League was the white high schools and um, the Virginia interscholastic league was the black high schools um, as they they slowly put in place busing, in a couple of cases, the black high schools were too big, and the school systems were blacks were too big a share of the school system to shut down the black high schools. Right. So Booker T. Washington High School in Norfolk, Maggie Walker High School in Richmond, blacks are a big share of Norfolk and of. Um, Richmond, I.C. Norcom High School in Portsmouth. So you have these few high schools that are left and these few black coaches that are left. Um, So then they had to figure out, you know, how are we going to get the black schools into the schedules of the white schools? There was huge fights over this because from the white high school's perspective, well, you know, we only play nine games a year. So if we put you in the schedule, some famous rivalry that we have can't take place. Yeah. Uh, and initially they wanted to, to, to not let them play. Uh, so so there, were, there were a lot of deep undercurrents going on that that movie missed by simplifying it and making it as just, you know. This, this was your environment. This was high school for that you. That was high school for Got me. it. So you so. experienced a lot of this, this change in the school system and then it was playing out in a very unusual way within the athletics department. Yes, and right. in the lives of the students, and right? The lives because of the students. yeah, because um, expectations were going to have to change. Right. 
uh, people have to remember the the, the Wilmington Ten, uh, and this sounds strange if you try and explain it to somebody. Uh, this was over the flag girls, you know, for for marching bands in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, there are these um, jobs where you have these flags that go with the marching band. Uh, in the case of Wilmington, they didn't want to let the black girls do that. In the case of most of the schools, black girls being a cheerleader, like this is no, absolutely not, no. Right. Not, not only no, but like you must be certifiably crazy. Right. You have a mental illness if you think that there ought to be. Right. Like there's something wrong with you. Why do we have to explain this to you? Right, right. Like don't you get, why don't you get this? Right. <laughs> Like, this is obviously not right thinking on your part. Yeah. Um, so that was the other thing unique in T.C. Williams was they had these black cheerleaders, which is like, so there, there are a lot of subtleties that, that the movie um, missed by not appreciating the full story that they could have told. And they're, they're watering down and simplifying it, um, masked. Right. Masked on. So, so here I am finishing high school. Yeah. And I want to be a civil rights uh, uh, lawyer. And, and, and I'm sure those experiences only intensified that desire. Uh, yeah, because for my interpretation, you know, great, you guys won the case, but here are all these other issues. Yeah, there's this that are on the table that you should have been thinking about. There's a lot more to do. Yeah, that there's more to do, and they were like, no, 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 because we already, you know, we won these things. Uh, and and so this very close uh, friend of the family was what we haven't done, what we have not solved is the economic issue. Right. And you know, as as much as we celebrate what we've done, we understand there's a limit because as much as we've opened up opportunities, we these lawyers, we fully understand that there's this huge economic disparity. We haven't touched it. Right. And we need economists to tell us, how do you do that? Right, right. So uh, she is quite adamant, no, you gotta be an economist. Oh, okay, so who was this that told you this? Uh, this was a friend, uh, Goer Butcher, who um, was a brilliant international lawyer. She, um, Did she see something in you that made her think that you would have be talented at that, or was it more like, this is what's needed, and you, you should do this because there's this need for it? Uh, the Butcher family and, and my family, when we grew up next to each other, uh -huh. uh, our family values were very similar. Right. Um, and and in her family, uh, the famous saying was, "Did you bring your A game?" Mm -hmm. uh, and the answer is supposed to always be, "Yes, I brought my A game." Sure. <laughs> they did not have low expectations of any one of us. They treated us like their children. Yeah. Um, but so there was a belief that there was a greater need for an economist than another lawyer. A lawyer, yeah. I see. And so there was uh, a scarce. So they knew. What did they? Th what, what was it that they were thinking? An economist. What were they thinking that you could do as an economist that you couldn't do as a lawyer? What were they? Well, they they were convinced that it were the rules of the economy created these disparities. Okay. And that even if you opened up opportunity, these rules that they didn't understand. Yeah need it to be tweaked or fixed or turned in some way right. so that the system would operate in a fairer way. And someone had to understand what 
are the barriers we're not picking up. Yeah. And what creates them, what justifies them, what lets them continue and tell us, and then we can figure out the policies and the laws, right. but somebody has to point us in the right direction. So your desires stayed the same, but you learned of this new vocation where you could accomplish those, many of those same things, just in a different vocation? Right. Okay. But. But so, so the, the, the twist was that she's this famous uh, international um, lawyer and she ended up being, uh, Gola Butcher ended up being the head of the Africa Bureau for AID. Okay. Um, her most significant contribution for everybody was she was the counsel to um, the Congressional Black Caucus and their committee on Africa. Yeah, okay. And she is the one who pointed in all the directions to undermine apartheid. Oh, wow. Okay. So they would, the faculty at Howard would gather with the CDC on how is the United States going to bring down apartheid. Well, that got me all into international issues, and I really wanted to do development. I wasn't as... <laughs> I wasn't as concerned with solving these problems that she really thought I should have been concerned. In the United States? In the United you States. You were interested in developing countries, or Africa in particular? Right. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So when I chose which undergraduate school to go to, um, I chose Williams because Williams had a Center for Development Economics. I see. And uh, they had that focus in their faculty. Uh, fortunately for me, they decided when I was a senior that the um, students at the center were being too segregated away from the undergrads and they wanted to try and find a way to let the uh, fellows at the center get a sense of, you know, what is the rest of the college doing? Right. So they let two of us, um, one of my classmates, Michael Opankusi, Michael's brother, had been a graduate he had been a fellow uh, earlier, and uh, they let the two of us stay at the center. Uh, so my senior year, I, I spent at the center, and I got to take classes in development economics. Um, and when I was choosing graduate schools, that's what I was looking for. I was looking for a graduate school that was strong on uh, agricultural economics and could do good development work. And so that's how I chose Wisconsin. Okay. So you were still at that point interested in development. Right. So you spent years planning and investing in that kind of human capital. Right. And that kind of track. Right. Okay. Uh, my junior year at Williams, they had a program that would help uh, students who wanted to go into public service. And uh, so I was fortunate to win the, the, the access to that program and they placed me at the United Nations Development Program. Okay. So I worked in the Africa office. As a college student? As a junior? As a junior. Wow. So I worked as a, as a summer intern at the United Nations Development Program in the Africa unit helping them to um, uh, scan programs and, and helping their senior people and preparing reviews of, of programs that they had funded. So I got a sense of you know what the development work was and and what a development program uh, looked like. And then um, 
I, I got to Wisconsin, and one of my study friends, uh, graduate students in um, economics, you can't you can't make it on your own. You really have to be part of a team. So he, this is a colleague, a classmate. A classmate. He's saying that. Hap, what's hap, the context for that? Happened to be uh, an employee of the Central Bank of Nigeria. Okay. So this is one of my study buddies. Yeah. Uh, and my experience with him uh, made me quickly aware that as romantic as I wanted to paint all this stuff, mm -hmm. context, context, context matters a ton. Yeah. If you think you're going to go somewhere and say, oh yes, I've studied this economics and you just do this. and um, So that was the end of me in development economics. Really? Was that yeah. hard? To sort of say goodbye to what you've been doing for years and years? No. You were right. You, 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 you I, no, I, I, no, I, 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 that was a lesson in humility. Mm, okay. <laughs> that I, I clearly didn't understand enough. Yeah. And, um, I understand that. Yeah. And it, I'm still, I mean, I didn't drop out of econ. Right. Uh, it was just an understanding of what do I know and, uh, and, and that was when I decided, no, I, I should concentrate on something here in the U.S. Yeah. Because uh, that context, I know. I understand <laughs> that. And, um, and, and labor was the logical area because mm. that is where the disparity is obvious immediately right. in, in black and white experiences. Right. And the majority of income for all Americans comes from labor income. Right. Uh, but even more so for African Americans. Sure. And um, that was my first taste of uh, being a labor leader mm. because. At Wisconsin? At Wisconsin because um, I, I, was, I was pulled into the leadership of the teaching assistants. We, we had a one month strike. Wow. Um, I, You've been working with unions for a long time. Yes. Uh, and so that was. Uh, my baptism under fire. Interesting. Y'all were wanting more pay or no, less no, hours no, no, or no. So uh, this was um, the the late seventies, and the the country was going into recession. Wisconsin was facing budget crises, uh, and 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 the the response was, how can we cut cost? And some of the departments that were facing this tension the greatest were the ones that, as you can imagine, right, don't generate the money for the university. So right. French, right, right, Spanish, um, and w what those departments decided was, well, instead of paying our teaching assistants, yeah, you know what? This is now a requirement for graduation. Little bait, little moving stuff around. A yes. little funny accounting, a little bit. Well, no, super funny accounting because since it's a requirement, yeah, we don't have to pay you. Exactly. Right. So they argued that this was faculty governance prerogative. It's pretty creative. Yes. <laughs> so uh, as teaching assistants, we're like time out. <laughs> right. Right. Because of course, you know, anybody who's been to one of these big major state universities know if you take French 101 yeah. 
there's, you're not a teaching assistant. You're the faculty. Right. The students don't see anybody other than right. that graduate student. Right. So we're like, no, this is not, <laughs> that's not faculty prerogative. That's not faculty governance. Right. So don't give us that. Uh, so it generated a strike because if you gave in there, then, you know, we can do this for the whole university and then we don't have to pay teaching assistance at all. Right, right. Um, so in solidarity, the union went out, our contract was up for negotiation anyway, yeah. and this was just the extra impetus for making the, the, the line a hard line. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I, I became this spokesperson within, within the strike. Um, I had no intention of leadership, I was just a rabble-rouser. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up... That came natural. I had that always, leadership as I, a, in unions sort of it felt felt like I had been a student leader in high school. Okay. I had been a student leader in college. What's the skill set you had? What's the scarce skill set you sort of had that made that sort of a good fit for you? I mean, you know, that kind of contentious, you know, antagonistic. I'm going, but you know, not backing down and, mm -hmm. and negotiate. What, what is that? Well, you were going to be a lawyer. I think I think it's who my heroes were. Right, right. Um, my heroes, the people I, I thought were heroes, were the people who stood their ground and spoke their piece. Right, right. And those are the people I looked up to, and I thought, well, the, I want to emulate them. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that's part of it. And, um, and, and again, if you could imagine what it took for my parents to achieve what they did, you know, there's a clear message. You have to stand your ground. You can't right. just <laughs> back away right. because people will do everything to get in your way. Yeah. Um, and and um, and I think the 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 the, the, the uniqueness of, of 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 having been in the middle of the integration of the school system. Uh, and being a minority in that system uh, made me attuned to different divisions that were true. Right. So it was clear to me when I, because I was the president of my student body in high school, mm. that there were other divisions. There were the high school was located in a very working class white neighborhood, but also had very high income whites. I see. And you could easily see the division between mm -hmm. the kids from the surrounding neighborhood, which at that part, at that point in time, was was still all white, but right. not wealthy white people, right. uh, and the way that the richer white kids clicked off against these working class white people, right. uh, and to me that looked like well. Y'all have decided to click off against that, so I understand that. I that's obvious, but it, you're clicking off against these people too. Right. So I mean, um, part of part of that experience was just understanding that that it's more complicated. Life is more complicated, and there are more allies than one might think right. if you change your focus yeah. and look at what's really going on here, yeah. not being superficial and um, and so 
So you're at Wisconsin. So I'm at Wisconsin. Uh, I end up being a co-president of the teaching assistants. Okay. Um, what is your, as you switch to labor, what is your research about? Um, it still ended up being about race. Um, hmm. I was early influenced by a piece by Robert Brown, okay. who was the head of the Black Economic Research Center. Hmm. And uh, one of the pieces he wrote was the rapid rise of black land ownership after the Civil War peaked somewhere around 1920, 21. We have the price collapse in the agricultural sector, black land ownership collapsed and has continued to collapse. I see. It's never come anywhere near, <laughs> not even close to the amount of acres that were owned by blacks in mm. 1921. Wow. Um, that fascinated me. Uh, and, and at that point, having moved from Washington to um, Virginia Beach and you're surrounded by uh, Southampton County where Nat Turner uh, staged his revolt, that's a county that's like two counties over. Um, I was fascinated by that time period and the idea of, so from zero to millions of acres of land, like how does this happen? Right. Uh, and you know the odds of which against which this took place. Yeah. So it's a rather incredible story. I find I found it very fascinating. Mm. Um, so wait, your research was directly connected to what that descriptive point that Robert Brown had made, which was this peak in African American ownership. And so you're looking at sort of this period after it. Is that right? Well, I even trying to explain that. My, 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 my work actually was on how did that happen? How, how did that how, happen? How, how, how did you, because if you understand some successes, right, yep. then you get a sense for why wasn't that sustained. What was your theory about why it happened? Um, so that's what my dissertation was on. Um, but I, I had written a preface to it in a way when I was an undergrad. My, my thesis in political, I double majored at Williams in political science and economics. But my political science thesis was on the Colored Farmers Alliance. Mm -hmm. um, and what drew me to that was the Colored Farmers Alliance was a segregated arm of the Farmers Alliance. And so here was an attempt at sort of arm's distance of how can we unite on class lines, yeah. the common interest of being farmers, um, and the Knights of Labor uh, was a movement taking place at the same time. Um, but I got all this research on these, on the Colored Farmers Alliance, which clued me into there are all these landowners, which isn't part of the way the history was taught, right. uh, and trying to understand how did they do that. So that was my dissertation. My dissertation was black land accumulation, wealth accumulation from 1900 to 1915. Wow. Um, and that's the period of growth. That was the most rapid period of growth, wow. was that period. Uh, it turns out that it's, uh, it, it appeared to be very much related to the recovery of Southern banking. People forget that- Southern banking? Southern banking. Oh, people forget that, the, that because of the Civil War, all the Southern banks, right, had ceded from the United States, seceded from the United States. Uh, all the gold went to Richmond at the very end of the war, and uh, mysteriously, in the last months of the Civil War, the money was supposed to go from Richmond 
and they were moving the capital, remember, down to Alabama, yeah. uh, the gold disappears. The entire gold of the Southern banking system gone. Hmm. So the Southern banking system totally collapsed. When did that happen? 1865. In April of 1865, as the Confederacy was trying to move from Richmond uh, to Montgomery, Alabama, this money disappears. Uh, and, you know, some people have tried to write some novels about, you know, where did all this gold go? Right. <laughs> um, so it took a long time for the Southern banking system to recover. Yeah. Uh, when that system recovers, then uh, credit availability in expands so that finally it's possible for these landless people to get credit I and see. leverage buying land. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. That's really cool. And, well, the really interesting part is the echo of all that, right? You have Booker T. Washington, mm. and you have other leaders saying, you know, um, we're agricultural workers. This is our heritage. This is where we've come from. Own that land. You must become landowners. Sound familiar? Borrow the money. Do anything. Become landowners. Well, wow. Of course, they never, borrowed all this money. Heard the economic backdrop to that. Yeah, so they borrow all this money, they become landowners, World War I comes, the prices of agricultural products goes through the ceiling, mm. so farmers are doing well, banks love to loan you money because now agricultural prices are going, farmers are doing well, World War I ends, European farmers come back at the end of World War I, somewhere around 1920, 1921. Yeah. Agricultural prices collapse, and here are these people, heavily in debt, with no that prices. That economic history of African Americans, I feel like, is not, when I took African American uh, literature in mm -hmm. college, I was an English major, mm -hmm. and I did not, I did not hear that kind of economic history underlaying the history of the African American in the United mm -hmm. States in the 20th century. That's really interesting. Yeah, so, because, well, it was a very dark period. Yeah. Part of the reason for the success at being able to buy the land was that was the period when the South was becoming a transition from the 19th century to the 20th century. It was becoming more urban. The urban centers became more important. Yeah. And so whites were willing to leave the land. Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so the ones with wealth were busy going to the cities and building up southern ah, cities. Yeah. And so in my dissertation is the other twist to that, yeah. which was uh, blacks were in the right place at the wrong, wrong time. time. Yeah. So uh, one of the because things- Because of the collapse? Be no, because uh, this desire to own land, but they own land, remember these southern cities are small, yeah. and many of them hadn't spread out to their current borders. Right. So on the outskirts of many of these cities were black farms. Yeah. And then suddenly these cities become desirable. And we have to house all these new industrial working class whites. Okay. So what I found in my dissertation was there were black farms that white land de developers bought and then instantly put race restrictive covenants oh my when they converted them to home developments. 
that was what your dissertation was about? Well, it included that because yeah. that was the that was the other part of what's what's really going on here. Yeah. So part of it is you had to have credit access in order to buy the rural land. Right. Why are you able to buy this land? Well, in part because whites are going to the cities and the, the people who have the wherewithal to make the investments are now investing in cities. So you would imagine that, well, if blacks are owning all this land, why didn't they become wealthy? Because if this urban development is buying up all this agricultural land near the cities, yeah. and a lot of black farmers were truck farmers, you know, they grew the vegetables and all that kind of stuff for the cities, why didn't they, they were sitting on a gold mine. And it's like, mm, this is why. Right. These land developers who, thanks to the trolley, you could s expand the cities further. Yeah. And as the trolley lines were being built, you got this pattern of investment and these or the a totally new creature to the United States. These are the Levitt towns before they were Levitt towns. Uh -huh. <laughs> they put race restrictive covenants all over. Wow, wow. So, so not only did blacks sell the land, but then it was like, but you're never coming back. Right. So you graduate from Wisconsin. Yeah. You go on the job market. What year is that? Uh, I went on the job market in 81. Uh, I was, I, I had a clock in my mind. I a tenure clock? Uh, uh, no, not a tenure clock. I had a clock in terms of giving. So I, I fully understood that uh, the fact that I got to Williams, the fact that I went to Wisconsin on an affirmative action scholarship, all of this was possible uh, ex at the expense of some black people putting up an effort to make that happen. Right. This so is not you, you felt an obligation of to give back. service, right? So I, 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 I was committed. I was going to teach at a HBCU. Okay. So, um, so in '81, I taught at North Carolina A and T, um, and I had, I made the mistake. So, to any young economist out there, uh, finish your dissertation <laughs> first. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Don't uh, leave, don't be so AB, don't go ABD and leave. Yes, do not leave ABD. Right. Leave with the paper. So uh, the learning curve is steep, and especially if you're at an HBCU because the teaching load is heavy. So heavy. And it this, was like a four four. Or more it was than that. a well in that case it was a three three, but because um, okay. I was in the school of business, they were accredited. It was a unique opportunity right. to be in a setting where they encouraged you to do research, but it really wasn't a setting to do research. Yeah. Um, and, and to do a good job, there's extra preparation you have to do because you, yep. you have to teach the students some basics. You can't just assume that they yep. had. Yep. Yep. And you were dedicated, dedicated to making sure they did that. Yep. So there went two years up in smoke, so to speak. You um, think that people at that time that are, that are working in the historically black colleges have that is that a common trait, that kind of, I would call that positive selection, that sort of, uh, you know, driven by uh, a sense of mission? Was that, did you, did you come into contact with a lot of that in your colleagues? Oh, it, it is because, in, I mean, in 81, I mean, I'm on the job market. I didn't have to teach at HBCU. Right. Like, you don't have to do it. Yeah. Uh, and um, so the people who are there are, Dedicated to dedicated. making sure that they can mm. give other people not give other people their opportunity, yeah. which is how I viewed this. Is right. I was given an opportunity, I have to give it back. Right. You can't just go off and act like right. you did this on your own. Right. Because you didn't. 
which is, you know, the other thing I, I mean, I learned from my parents. I mean, you know, when my parents um, get, immediately got out of the service, they had to live in public housing. Yeah. Um, and so they, they made quite clear as I was growing up, don't think you're all that in a bag of chips and you came from somewhere because we lived in public housing. So don't, right. <laughs> don't give me some like you got some errors because we didn't have it and we're not going to tolerate it because yeah. this is not us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I mean, and you know, my, my grandfather in fact had a patent, wow. um, my grandfather on my father's side. There is a patent held by William Edward Spriggs, not me. Oh. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is a smart guy. I yeah. mean, he was a janitor, but he's a smart guy. Wow. Um, so, I mean, I fully understood me being at Williams is not because of me, because his patent, right? He should have been at Williams, you know, 70 years before I got there. Mm -hmm. So th this is not about, oh, you're so smart and that's why you're there. It's like, yeah, right. Right, <laughs> right. So, so Although you're obviously very talented. <laughs> yeah, you may be talented, but there were people who were more talented than uh -huh. you before. Sure. So this is not about you. Yeah. So, so I felt I had to give back, um, mm. and and that's the clock I had was I have to give back at least for every year I got I have to give somebody else. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, so I I I taught at A and T for two years and 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 fortunately for me I had a National Science Foundation fellowship. Mm. Fortunately for me, there were very dedicated faculty at Wisconsin who were big supporters of me. Um, uh, Art Goldberger, who taught me econometrics. Mm. Wow. Um, Wait, where was he? He was your colleague? No, he, uh, was, he was my professor He was your Wisconsin. professor at Wisconsin. Yeah, okay. he, he taught, uh, and this is another big lesson, uh, to economists. You say Art Goldberger, this is like, you know, <laughs> this is the giant of econometrics. Yeah. Um, so the fact that he taught first-year grad students, yeah. right, for somebody that senior see, and right. that well known, right. that I'm going to teach first year grad students. Right, right. Which um, is also driven by a sense of uh, obligation to this generation of students. Yes. Right. So I, it was reinforced in by, your, by in these. Wisconsin training. Yeah, by this Wisconsin training because then they still had faculty, uh, graduate faculty, who thought we're actually supposed to teach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and, and Goldberger was fantastic because um, he didn't just use his skills in econometrics to play games like some of these people today. Uh -huh. um, he took on serious social issues and at the time there was all this stuff about genetics and how, you know, sure. uh, you know this is all uh, race genetic. And, like race and genetics. Yes, and this is all genetic destiny. This was stuff was already brewing yeah. uh, and he totally ripped it apart. Mm. I mean, just took it, uh, it did little shreds the way that he, you know, we feared he might do to us any moment in class. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. And, and so seeing him take on these folks are supposed to be, you know, other brilliant yeah. econometricians and yeah. watch them just slice Tear them up. up. Yep. You know, it was like, so this is what you can do with the skill. This right. is not. Right, um, right, right. And there are people like that, you yeah. know. And, and Jeff Williamson, who, when I first got to Wisconsin, um, I, I read a paper um, by, uh, by an economist I thought was bunk and, um, and I wrote a response. I did research and 
uh, and I, I handed it to Jeff Williamson. Well, I handed it to Goldberger. Goldberger said, this is a history thing, you should give it to Jeff Williamson. I didn't know Williamson at the time, but I gave it to him. Williamson, uh, so this was meant to be a comment that I was gonna submit to the AER. Okay. Uh, so I think it was like maybe 12 pages. Uh, Williamson gave me back like 14 pages in red ink. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, I mean, it was, but it was so impressive to me, like, you really read it. I mean, yeah, this right. wasn't like right. some cursory, yeah, I read it, like, yeah, you're all, really you're, taking it seriously. He took it seriously, he took yeah. it dead seriously, and from then on, he took that same level of interest in, in, in my work and what wow. I did. Wow. So, so, so that was, that was helpful, and, um, and, and so I got the National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship because they took interest and they wrote these strong letters right. of recommendations. So fortunately for me, uh, the way the NSF grad thing worked was you, you were allowed two years off. So I had my two years off and then I used it to, yeah. to I stopped teaching and went back to finish and- um, Oh, how long, so how many years is that after you leave Wisconsin and then go back a couple of years? It was two years. Two years. And then I used the NSF to finish. Got it. So this okay. is the third year. Got it. Um, and um, then I taught at Norfolk State um, because the chair of the accounting department yeah. at A&T had left to go to Norfolk State uh, to set up their school of business. Um, so this got me back home to mm. Norfolk. Uh, and I stayed there for six years. Um, then uh, my wife was an attorney, and she didn't like Norfolk, <laughs> uh, so she said, let's be in a different place. She, she chose Washington. Okay. Uh, my office mate at Wisconsin, when I was a grad student, uh, was Larry Michelle, who was at the time the research director at the Economic Policy Institute, okay. which had been founded by labor. Yeah as a counterbalance against uh, AEI and um, the Cato Institute. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, Brookings had stopped being so impartial. Brookings was becoming more neoliberal corporatist. Mm. So they felt, we don't have anybody who's really looking out for working class people and doing research. Brookings said that? No, Brookings. No, the, the labor movement. The labor movement. The labor okay. movement's view was, the old liberal regime that we had relied on has sort of broke ranks with us and right. they're not helping policies that help working class people. They seem right. to be promoting policies that are all for corporations. Yeah. Right. So they wanted the Economic Policy Institute to look out for working people. Um, but uh, this was the late 80s the labor movement now was reeling because the private sector throughout the 80s had been emulating what Reagan had done with PATCO, the, the strike against, uh, the strike by the air traffic controllers and Reagan had replaced all the yes. federal air traffic controllers. Yes. It's an obscure piece of a, a weird ruling by the Supreme Court on why the National Labor Relations Act was legal involving some telegraph operators for a company called McKay Radio. Uh -huh. uh, in their ruling, the court was asked to rule because the workers felt they had been retaliated against, the workers who led the strike felt they had been retaliated against. And the Supreme Court ruled 
the National Labor Relations Act is legal. Mm -hmm. What the companies did was illegal. You did retaliate against the workers. The workers must be reinstated. And then they did a little footnote. And they said, this is, the fact case was, the company in, during the strike had hired some replacements. When the strike ended, they took back all the workers except the leaders of the strike. Yeah. The Supreme Court ruled, well, you could have permanently replaced all the workers. And you had the right to do that. This is a little footnote. You had the right to replace all the workers. The fact that you did not replace all the workers, the fact that you only let you let all the other workers back except these three strike leaders meant you retaliated against them. Okay. So it was a victory for labor, but that one little footnote, and it truly is a footnote, yeah. uh, became, aha, we have the right to permanently replace all strikers. Right. So in the 80s, this was a big problem for unions because now companies following Reagan feel the government's not going to do anything to us. Reagan did it. We can do it. Right. Uh, strike activity in the U.S. collapses. Right. The labor movement felt they had to get a legislative fix to that court case. And so they brought me in with my labor background and my union background <laughs> to do the research and make the argument for that legislation. Yeah. Uh, so that's why EPI wanted me, and because my office mate knew me, yeah, <laughs> and he says I know the guy who can do this, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I had to use historical records because yeah. there was no current record to let you understand this, and uh, so my training in economic history helped. Yeah, um, and I got to be the lead witness for the Democrats on the legislation to correct this. Uh, Bill Clay was the chair of the committee at the time. And the House passed it. The neat thing was um, I'm the lead expert and the labor leader who was called to be the lead labor leader, Richard Trumka who was the president of the United Mine Workers at the time. Uh -huh. Well, he was a hero of mine because if you know their history in the um, late 70s and kind of early 80s, they had all this strife. There was an actual civil war within the union. Mm. They, they were killing each other. And so I'm, I'm not, this is not hyperbole, they actually killed people. Wow. Um, and he, he stepped in to clean up the union. So wow. he was a hero because, at, you know, at the same time, you know, here I am, this little head of a AFT local. Um, but, but his 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 bravery in the midst of this, you know, there are real consequences here because they will kill you. Um, his bravery to clean up this union, you know, this is like wow, this is you know. So he actually was a hero. So it was really a big deal to me yeah. that um, you know here I am. This is the first time I'd ever testified. Mm. And on this big stage about this big piece of legislation, and here's one of my, you know, labor heroes. Um, so you know, who knew that you know I would end up being the chief economist to Richard Trumka <laughs> right, right, right. later in life? 
Um, uh, and then, you know, I, I, I worked on the minimum wage fights. Um, what year is this? In the, the, the 90s, okay. early 90s. So the After that Cardin-Kruger paper comes out, and then right. there's like lots of discussion in, in D.C.? Okay. Yes, and, and so we had a fight to raise the minimum wage under Bush. Uh -huh. uh, and then um, I went into the Clinton administration because while EPI was founded by the labor movement, um, it was, uh, the board was made up of all these allies of the labor movement. Uh, and EPI at the time had created the atmosphere for Bill Clinton's victory uh -huh. because the um, whole research thrust that Larry Michelle had started was the 80s weren't all that good mm. because the wages of American workers didn't go up. Right. And his whole message was the economy, stupid. Right. Run on the economy. Right. And that whole economy, stupid, came from the Economic Policy Institute. It was the fact that working Americans weren't benefiting. Right. Our wages aren't going up. The fat cats are getting fatter. Where's our piece of the pie? Right. And Bill Clinton wrote on that. He talked about what's happening to the typical American worker. Right. Where's theirs? Yeah. Uh, so Robert Reich yeah. was a board member. He becomes the Secretary of Labor. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, if you help a campaign, then you get the goodies. So um, I was chosen to head the uh, um, Federal Commission for Employment Policy which was uh, an independent agency when they created the Manpower Act, which was the big push for federally funded labor training. And the idea was ind an independent commission ought to be evaluating those job training programs. So even though our budget, because it was a tiny agency, even though our budget was funneled through the Department of Labor, we were an independent agency. Um, but that meant that the Department of Labor had some say about who was going to be over at that commission. Yeah. Um, so I was there, uh, and then um, didn't get along very well with the person they chose to be commissioner. Um, but um, uh, there's that small window when the Democrats controlled um, the House uh, and the chair of the Joint Economic Committee became Kwesi Mfume, a black congressman from Baltimore who had inherited Perrin Mitchell's seat, uh, had earned <laughs> to, re to replace Perrin Mitchell. And um, he walked into the office and he's like, so what's wrong here? I'm the chair, and nobody in this office looks like me. Nobody looks like me. He's like, how could this be? Right, right. <laughs> so um, by then I was well known in D.C. because I had been at the Economic Policy Institute. I had worked on minimum wage. I had worked on NAFTA. Yeah. Uh, I had worked on the strike replacement issue. Um, and, and so I got recruited to be an economist with the Joint Economic Committee. Um, and though I was very well known by the labor movement and labor allies, at that point I wasn't very well known in the civil rights community. So um, Mr. Fume says, you know, 
everybody speaks very highly of you. Um, Bill Lucy, who was the uh, founder and head of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, was a very good um, uh, mentor of mine. And so he knew Bill Lucy, and so he said, you know, people I respect say, but I have absolutely no idea who you are. <laughs> right, right, right. But uh, This is late 90s? Uh, this is like 93. Oh, this is early 90s, okay. Yeah, so so he's like, but, you know, these other people say you're okay, so okay. And, you know, I I told them, find somebody. This, you're the one they found, so okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then we became wonderful friends. He, he was a huge mentor to me. I, I, I felt like he was a big brother. Um, and so I, I ended up being his right-hand person on economics, both on the fight for the minimum wage, which we got passed, um, and uh, on protecting minority businesses, because that was the time of the Adirondack decision, and Bill Clinton had to make that famous speech about, it, uh, I want to mend it, but don't end it, with mm. his reference to affirmative action. Yeah. That was over the Adirondack case. Okay. Um, then, uh, of course, the Republican Revolution happens in 94. Mr. Nfume becomes, instead of chair of the committee, <laughs> just a ranking member of the committee. Mm. Um, and the NAACP called on him to be the president of the NAACP. Mm. So he decides he'd rather be the president of the there. NAACP. Okay. He could do more in that position than being a minority member of Congress. Yeah. Um, so I went back to the Clinton administration. Uh -huh. <laughs> Because in the response to Mend It But Don't End It, um, Secretary Brown of Commerce had tragically died in that plane crash and the trade mission um, to the former Yugoslavia. Uh, and uh, with him went a whole cadre of his top assistants who had been involved in, in Brown's pledge to carry out the research for mend it, but don't end it. Yeah. Um, so it it kind of floundered for a while because the leadership for that effort was all gone. Right. The person who had been the uh, deputy secretary was very devoted to Secretary Brown, wanted to fulfill Brown's promise, so was eager to have them live up to it. The person who had been the staff director for the Joint Economic Committee was the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs. That was the unit that was supposed to do this research. So he brought me over because I had worked on this issue for Congressman Afume when Congress had to beat back efforts within the Democratic caucus yeah. to cave. Right. Because the Democrats were going to cave. Uh, Biden was going to cave. Um, Joe Lieberman was going to cave. Joe Lieberman was leading the fight to cave, mm. um, and and so fortunately they they held were able to hold it. But that was Mr. Fumé's leadership mm. to keep Democrats from taking action to to end affirmative action and procurement. Uh, so I led this team over at Commerce to fulfill mm. Brown's promise and to come up with a way that we could have. Uh, a, a program that would meet the strict scrutiny test that the Supreme Court had put on affirmative action. Yeah. So by st strict scrutiny, they meant, okay, 
you have uh, an interest. We got that. Minority business ownership is very low. Utilization is low. The government should have a diverse pool of companies that compete. It's yeah. in the interest of the government to have that. Got that. But that doesn't mean your program uh, is okay. And right. so you have to be able to show that it was strictly corrective. Um, so you had to document that um, in accordance with firms that were willing and able to do federal contracting, the minorities were in fact not truly represented and you had a way to correct it. Right. Um, so my job was to convene some experts, listen to their approach to it, and then uh, come up with a solution. It was eye-opening mm. because the solution was because of discrimination, so let me step back. You, you have to think of when you're doing business with the government, that's like a business-to-business -business transaction. Um, a lot of people, when they talk about, you know, black business uh, in the black community, when they talk about black business, you know, they'll talk about, well, why is the corner store owned by Koreans and not black people? And, and they're thinking about retail and business-to-consumer. Most of America's business is not business to consumers, it's business to business. Yeah. That is American business. Mm. That's where the money is. And um, the business to retail is, is trivial. Mm. Um, and, and so because of discrimination in business to business transactions, yeah. minority firms have to seek contracts from the government and are very willing to seek contracts from the government because they're locked out of business to business. That's the, the business of last resort for them right. is the government. Yeah. And so the insight was they, they actually are overrepresented among the firms that want to do it. And everybody else before had just been saying, okay, this share of business is black owned, minority owned, and so they should have that share. But when you look at who wants to do government business, yeah. it's not this little share. It's a much bigger share. Right. <laughs> um, so it was to document that, in fact, that's true. And so the eye-opener to me was, um, you know, this is the 90s. This is like 95, 96. So I'm thinking, we'll just get some government tapes. They'll tell us who made bids we'll match up who's the minority firms from this set of bids. Piece of cake. We'll be out of here and done in no time. There are no tapes. We don't have such data. Mm. We don't have data on who bids on government contract. No, we don't. It's all with the individual contracting officer. Hmm. So the reason why this is mind-blowing is so my question was, how do you know they're not price fixing? Right. Because these decisions are made at agency level. So when the Army says, we need 500 pounds of chicken legs to feed people at Fort Lee, they don't call the Department of Agriculture. They put out a bid for that. Yeah. The Department of Agriculture needs 500 pounds of chicken legs to feed school lunch to the kids in Petersburg. Right. These agencies aren't talking to each other. Mm. So I'm like, how do you know 
that Purdue doesn't say, hey, you can have the Fort Lee contract. I want the Petersburg school system contract. You bid on this with the Army, and I'll bid on that with AG. Yeah. Like, y'all don't have a tape to see this? Right. <laughs> nope, we don't. <laughs> hmm. So we had to have an old-fashioned survey of all the agencies going to their contracting officers and pulling their files, paper files, this is the mid-90s, pulling their paper files to tell us who bids on these contracts and what do they bid. Right. I'm like, I'm blown away. Yeah. And so what I thought was gonna be this simple thing ended up being this hugely complex thing. But fortunately, the Clinton administration was quite concerned with this and was dedicated to it. Um, fortunately for me, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors at the time was Janet Yellen. Mm. And Janet Yellen took a lot of interest in this and the approach. She thought it was a reasonable approach. Um, I actually had to litigate the, this approach in front of her. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I got to meet her and work with her on, on this issue. Um, and um, uh, which is a bad thing. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, so we ended up coming up with this way the, that um, then matched the information on the firms to data that was at the Census Bureau, um, and we were able to control for the size and the age of the firms, uh, and then the share of those firms is represented among all possible bidders. Uh, we were able to document that, indeed, minority firms are way underrepresented in certain industries mm. when it comes to winning contracts. Right. Um, and the realization you have to have when you have a political job is they are temporary. <laughs> I call them rent a jobs. <laughs> so you always have to have in your mind, you know, what's my next job? Uh, fortunately for me at that time, uh, the director of public policy for the National Urban League uh, was being transitioned out and the job became open. Um, and this was the first time I applied for a job uh, where I didn't know anybody. Mm. Um, and fortunately I was chosen. Mm. So I headed the National Urban League's uh, office, uh, which, mm, Working for Congressman Infume and working for Hugh Price of the National Urban League, two best jobs I ever had in my life, mm. uh, because they were both brilliant in their own w different way, but both brilliant. And I thought I learned a lot of stuff from Mr. Infume and a whole lot from Hugh Price. Um, uh, and so they were both like, you know, big brothers to me. I didn't have a big brother. I, and, and so to me, they were like big brothers. They were they, the way that if you had a good big brother, <laughs> yeah, right. um, the, the, the big brother who's old enough that uh, they're not competing with you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but they can show you the path and they can, you know, give you a sense of, of how you get somewhere and how right. you can get ahead. Um, so the Urban League job was fantastic for me because I got to pull together all of my experiences. Um, my contacts on the Hill. Uh, when I was at the Joint Economic Committee, I mean, this is the other tragedy of the way Washington works, despite the fact that the Black Caucus is so important. Within the Hill professional staff, 
are, there are very few black professional staff. Mm. Um, and uh, through a quirk, uh, uh, there were two of us, sort of the last, the, the la last two standing. Uh, so we, uh, Pat Ruggles and I split up. She knew more people in the Senate and I knew all these members of the CBC. So she took the Senate and, because it's a joint committee, Senate and House, and she acted as the staff director for the Senate staff herself, yeah. and I was the staff director for the House staff myself, uh, which meant that I went to the senior meetings okay. of the senior staff of these committees. Uh, there were only two of us. There were only two black senior staff mm. at the meeting. So, you know, we're, we're meeting with, um, then Dick Gephardt was the leader of the Democrats at the time. So, you know, all of the senior committee staff, the uh, the heads of the staff, are mean and there's just two of us. Yeah. Um, pretty sad. So, um, so I had lots of Hill contacts um, and because of Mr. Fumay standing, I had lots of now, lots of, not lots of contacts within the civil rights community. community. Um, as soon as I get to the National Urban League, um, you know, we have all these horrible cases in New York. Um, the Amadou Diallo case had uh, just happened. Uh, Hugh Price, the National Urban League is headquartered in New York. So this is a firestorm around him. Um, he's incensed, he wants to come to Washington and you know, make a statement. Bill Clinton has to do better by the black community than this to let these police rampantly kill black people. Um, and in, and you know, in Amadou Diallo's case, we know it was a horrible case in which he 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 was a person waiting on a ride in the vestibule of his apartment building, right. and the police—I don't remember how many bullets it was, 80 bullets or whatever—filled the man with bullets mm -hmm. um, under horrible pretense, mm -hmm. um, and of course he was unarmed. Um, yep. So, uh, one of many similar stories. Yes, and and at the time that was the cause celeb, and and so because of my ties, I was able to put together this news conference, uh, um, which which he would ask me to do. Yeah. Um, and of course, I knew Mr. Fume, so I got the NAACP <laughs> instantly on board. I had worked with Jesse Jackson. Mm. He was instantly on board, and you know this, the the the, the picture of this news um, cast of the event looks like the Hall of Fame at the moment. Um, uh, Johnny Cochran, um, uh, um, we had people outside of politics. Ed Lewis, who headed up Essence magazine at the time. Um, Reverend Lowry, we had people from the original SCLC, Reverend Lowry was there, uh, and, uh, and, and so it's this fantastic coming together um, uh, press conference that we were able to pull off, but, but because now I had lots of connections uh, and I was able to leverage that. And because Hugh uh, was dedicated to having a sound basis for positions the National Urban League took, he gave me free reign and making sure I would have people in place who could do the research, who could make the case for public policies that made sense. Right. Um, and 
uh, I was always irritated. There were only two of us who had the job of representing black America. Um, Hillary Shelton, who did the NAACP, and me, who did the National Urban League. Mm -hmm. Initially, because I hadn't done lobbying, I mean, I had been lobbied when I was on the Hill as a staffer, but I'd never done lobbying. Um, wherever Hillary Shelton went, I went. Because I figured, well, I'll learn from him. Yeah. Then it dawns on me, the NAACP is in this meeting, the Urban League is in this meeting. This is one room. All the other policies <laughs> happening in America right now, yeah. there is no black person in the room. Right. No. No one. Welfare reform, <laughs> criminal justice, black farmers complaining about violations and discrimination, nothing. There's nobody in those other rooms. So then it became whatever room Hillary's in, I have to be in a different room. <laughs> Initially, people were like, oh, you don't like Hillary Shelton. They thought we had a falling out. It's like, we're not a falling out. Yeah. It just dawned on me that unless for some unknown reason he needs me, yeah. I don't need to be in the room. He's going to say what I'm going to say. All, all I'm going to do is say you amen. spread you all around. Yes. You need it even more than just the two of y'all. Yeah. Right. And me saying amen is not. Because <laughs> yeah. they know I'm going to say amen to whatever he says. I'm not going to go in the room and say, you know, the NAACP sucks. I mean, this is not happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I have to be in some other room on something else that's happening. So I would always get, you know, infuriated because you, you, you would be on the press and I'd be watching the news and people would be saying, these civil rights groups, all they care about is blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you didn't ever talk to me. I don't even know who you are. So how are you saying what I do right. <laughs> when you don't know me yeah. and I have no clue who you are? Right. Right. Um, and so, I mean, many people were surprised, right? Um, I mean, uh, I would be at meetings on what's tax policy going to be? I would be at meetings, well, obviously welfare reform was important at the time, welfare reform, um, trade. Um, so uh, I, I, I really got irritated at what people thought that Hillary and I did, but given that there were only two of us, it, it also irritated me that they assumed they knew what we did yeah. <laughs> and could just pontificate about this and the press would just eat this up like, why are you eating this up? This is yeah. Total fairyland. <laughs> um, so I, I did that job uh, for six years, and I felt, again, this was sort of giving back, and sort of the ultimate, right, of giving back in the sense that um, teaching at A&T and at Norfolk State yeah. gave other people knowledge that I had acquired, but this was me actually working for the type of organization that got me the chance. Yeah that I had in my life in the first place. Right. And being able to use those skills yeah. to advocate, to give other people mm -hmm. uh, a chance, not just the ones who would be sitting in a classroom with me. Right. Um, and uh, working for Hugh Price was ideal, it was wonderful. Um, Uh, but when he left and, you know, it was time for me to do something different, yeah. um, I went back to the Economic Policy Institute briefly to help 
with the fight on Social Security uh, because Bush had loaded both barrels to try and privatize Social George W. Yeah. Uh, his second term he thought was a mandate to change Social Security. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so uh, um, I contributed a lot to that because people you thought they could use particularly the black community as a wedge because black life expectancy is so short and the way they would always sell this is as, oh, you black people get cheated. You don't even reach retirement. Don't you want your money in a private account? Because otherwise you don't get any money. This way, at least when you die, you get something. Of course, this is a, this is a total misunderstanding of the program. It is an insurance program. Mm -hmm. It is not a retirement program. Uh, only one in three people work all their lives, get to 65, and then get retirement benefits on their own work history. Right. The rest of the people either become disabled before they reach 65 and draw disability, or they are a spouse, and because of gender discrimination and pay, end up drawing a benefit based on their husband's benefit, so they're actually getting an insurance. They're not getting yeah. from their own work yeah. record. Yeah. So, so this characterization that I can privatize it because you just pay into it and then you retire, it's like this is not how it works. The median age for a black person getting a Social Security check, something like 59 or 58, it's not even 61. Mm -hmm. Because um, people forget, right, the survivor benefit when you die, there are these kids disproportionately those are black kids because disproportionately the people who die are black yeah and so people were totally forgetting there are a lot of black kids who get a social security check because they're the survivor of a worker right and then they forgot that disproportionately black workers have the type of job where we become disabled and we draw disability so by by actually putting data in front of people and pointing out how are you going to address this? Because if you go on savings, these kids are getting nothing. Right. We don't make anything, and when we die, you can divide up this little bit of money, but you will not be able to approach the benefits that these ch children get. Yeah. And for a disabled worker, forget it. There's no way that their savings account is going to cover what they get through disability. So you, you have no answer if you say you want to privatize this thing for how black people experience the program, mm. which then brought in a big window for people to get to talk about the workers, most of whom are white, disproportionately they're black, but most of whom are white, who are disabled, yeah. who have disabilities. Mm. Um, and it opened up a conversation about another set of people, you again, who are mostly white, who are disabled as children, and when they reach adulthood, those people who are adults are drawing uh, a benefit based on their parents. Is it that um, there's a level of indifference to the black, the black American experience that makes that privatization argument, you know, more compelling than it would be if, you know, than it is to you? Is it that they are just indifferent to the way in which, you know, uh, lower income African Americans are, are depending on these systems, or is it some other rationalization around it? It's ignorance. Yeah. It's because in the past, the approach taken by other scholars 
in response to this issue had been, well, it may be true that at birth blacks have a much shorter life expectancy. Yeah. However, if you look at people who make it to retirement, yeah. the gap in black life expectancy or white li life expectancy is very short. It's like mm. a year maybe. I don't know if it's a full year. If you make it that far. Yeah. And that's how it been, had been argued. Um, I think it was having a black scholar look at the program from a different lens right. brought a totally different argument. Because mm. uh, um, I mean, this was a dear friend of mine who had argued on behalf of black people this issue about, yeah, but you got to think about it from the perspective of given when you reach retirement, this isn't discriminatory. And they had just glossed over yeah. this bigger issue. Right. Uh, and, and there's a sense among too many in the policy arena that white people get to speak on behalf of black people right. and the interest of black people. And they get so used to it, and they get so used to, okay, now we're gonna have the adult conversation the so black conversation. You need to leave. Yes. The kiddie table is, right. oh, you guys, you're poor. You need job training. Okay, let's talk about job training. But if it's a big economic policy, like right. Social Security or tax policy, this is now the adult table. Yeah. Go away. Right. Even though this is going to impact you in some grossly disparate impact way, yeah. <laughs> go away. This is you not know, your table. It, it seems like we're coming a little bit full circle because I'm thinking back to that initial conversation with your neighbor who had said you could do more as an economist than as a lawyer. And I keep thinking there is a young man or a young woman right now in that exact same situation and they do not have a neighbor telling them that. You know, and you're describing, it, let's assume that there is a non-trivial amount of ignorance, mm -hmm. you know, giving the benefit of the doubt. Just there's amount of ignorance and there's ignorance about the African-American experience and as well as this condescension, which could also have some, you know, ignorance in it also. What are you gonna say, what, what is the piece of information that you would give to your this hypothetical neighbor, mm -hmm. to a young young man or young woman, mm -hmm. to help them know, this might be a better calling for you than the counterfactual. Yeah, well, I, I think this is still true. Um, what is clear in American life is that the way that race impacts so many aspects of life is that it is virtually impossible to have a program be race neutral. It is virtually impossible mm. unless you truly look at it and take it apart if you give credit for black agency so that you understand that black people are acting positively right. to try and overcome something. And, and then when you look at it from that lens, you begin to understand the myriad ways in which race comes into play. And so unless somebody does that, you're going to replicate racial disparity. And even when you think you're being well-intentioned. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give an example again, when they cut the deal on the drug provisions for Medicare. Right. 
uh, I, we have been in coalition. The, the, in the National Urban League is a big player in the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. Uh, but AARP, feeling that this is their bailiwick because they're representing seniors, um, had negotiated on our behalf. Mm. And, you know, there's a donut. So their impression was, look, we said if you're below the poverty line, you're covered. It's just between the poverty line and this other arena mm -hmm. where you got to chip in. And it's like, okay, the majority of black people are not poor. The majority are not poor. Mm. However, the majority are just above poverty. Right. So when it is true that disproportionately we're poor, yeah. and so it is true that when you said, I'll make the line at the poverty yeah. line, mm -hmm. you help a disproportionate share of black people, yeah. you punish the majority of black people because they're just above the poverty line to and you're not eligible for this. Yes. And so you're making us pay a disproportionate share of our income for this drug benefit. Right. Right. And so, you know, here's a well-intentioned ally. Yeah. But unless you really study it, you're going to make these kind of mistakes. Right. And I see that repeated again and again and again and again and again, where people think, oh, I dealt with poor people, so therefore I helped you out, so go away. Right. Um, and, and their unwillingness to engage on, uh, that's sloppy. You, the, right. you, there's a lot more work you got to do. Right, right. So, um, so you're basically saying, if, I'm, if I can summarize what mm -hmm. you're saying, is... Uh, a young, this young African-American man or woman, uh, it, it, there's a real opportunity cost to them not coming in, not just for their own, you know, uh, meaningful, th that it's a meaningful career and things like that, but since the, since the rules of the game are being set and there's not an African-American young man or young woman there to, to really inform it, it's just not going to correct itself through some kind of invisible hand. Exactly. Right. What I tell my students is, it's not their problem. So you're asking somebody else to solve your problem. Exactly. Yeah. And as well-intentioned as people are, they don't yeah. solve your problem. Right. And if you're not going to step in, it's not going to happen. The, the, because it's every policy, there's no policy yeah. that you can design this way unless somebody designs it that way. The reality is if you go to Washington, mm. I don't care what meeting you're in on, and I don't care what they're discussing. I don't care if, if they're discussing something very important to black people like criminal justice. Right. There's right. going to be one black person in the room at most, and in most cases there are no black people in the room. Yeah. So, so the idea that there's somebody else solving this and they'll solve this, like, no, this is not happening. It's not. And so... I cannot mm. say, I cannot say like my neighbor did, oh, we already won all the battles. It's like, no, yeah. I, we haven't even touched all the battles. We haven't even touched so it's, again, this it's a many long of fight. them. It's a long fight, and it's going to take a lot of people, and there aren't a lot of people. That's right. the problem. There are not a lot of people. Right. So uh, I have one last thing. Um, there's that, that metaphor of... Uh, these blind men they're all standing by an elephant and you know one person's holding the tail and thinks it's a rope and one person thinks the 
you know, the, the trunk is a tr or they think the leg is a tree trunk and all these things. Mm -hmm. and, and I was wondering, you know, speaking back to this ignorance issue, mm -hmm. uh, what, what is it that economists, if you think of the economists as these blind men and mm -hmm. they're standing against this thing and they're confused, mm -hmm. what are the, um, what uh, is it in the profession that you think most of the profession simply is incorrect about when it comes to the history of race and the the racism within the profession. What what is it that they? What's the fundament? What are some of the main sources of confusion? Their refusal to be as meticulous on the issue of race as they are with any other variable. Mm. If you ask an economist, why did you put in that variable? They will tell you with precision. I put in that variable because it measures this. Yeah. Okay, you put race in. What does it measure? That's going to be their answer. The reality is in the United States, race is a legal and legally binding thing. Mm. Now, we have ruled against using the law to create or recreate that binding thing. But if you're truly an economist, then you would understand, right? Well, people use the law as a means to do what the law was doing. The law said, the United States of America, land of equal opportunity and equal law, except there are a class of people defined by this thing called race that we may deny. Yeah. Housing, where you can sit, where you can go to school, where you can be buried, where so you can live. It's a real uh, laziness. It's a real laziness. With regards but, to thinking carefully about these things that we're supposed to be so smart, such well, smart people. Well, it's an unwillingness to take uh. on what that variable actually measures. Right. Because if you appreciate that it's a legal definition, then you would have to say there's discrimination. Mm -hmm. That violates economic principles. Right. So, so economists have a definition of rational. Yeah. Uh, a rational person must act to be a utility or profit maximizer. If you care about something that is not related to productivity, like mm -hmm. race, you're not rational. Mm. So. For a white economist looking at racial disparity, this means you would have to say, if you believe there was discrimination, that most white people are not rational. Uh -huh. They're not going to say that. Right. It is easier to say, if I see a racial disparity, it's not that white people aren't rational, it's something deficient about black people. Right. Yeah. So, so one, some, somebody is irrational here, yeah. and I gotta assign blame. It is not in the nature of a profession where black people tend not to be, <laughs> to want to say, well, there are lots these of- These are subtle forking paths. You sort of make these early decisions and they just really, they start off small and they kind of lead you in very, eventually into very dramatically different research agendas and conclusions and ultimately the designing of policy. Exactly, and, and a problem is 
the way the profession now has become over obsessed with identification. Yeah. If I make a claim that this is collusion and that this is a system which I can document a hundred and many years <laughs> right. where these laws were in place and had real meaning mm -hmm. and that's the meaning of race and what you are observing is either if you look back in history yeah you know what somebody passed this law and it and it achieved what the law meant to do yeah and the fact that the law says oh, you shouldn't do that it means that somebody else has figured out where well, we can achieve that without a law right I can't identify it right this right. is a power structure so Without it's not any quasi randomization I can't randomize it right. yeah I can't like un <laughs> especially with that potential outcomes framework as you said earlier mm -hmm. where you have to have manipulation and you've heard Don Rubin and others say I can't manipulate race what I remember Don Rubin saying one time what does that mean is that manipulating the hue of the the skin color and it, it's this in some ways, this binding, you know, handcuffing that, that if you commit to the, and, I, and I, I've written a book on, mm -hmm. you know, causality, and so I, I completely understand and appreciate it, but it can be a real, you know, uh, it, it can force you to ask only certain kinds of questions. That's and a then, good point. And then ignore other kinds of questions completely because you're not able to obtain an answer in the way that you've defined what an answer is. Exactly. Right. I mean, and it's, it's race is one of those. Um, other institutional factors are the rest of them, like unions. Yeah. It, you know, you try and argue to everybody. So when productivity and wages rose together, America had high union density. Ever since we've had low union density, Productivity and wages aren't related. Right. When productivity and wages were related, we increased the minimum wage constantly in relation to the median wage. Ever since we stopped doing that, productivity and wages aren't related. Yes, but that's correlation. You could imagine, though, uh, the million-dollar question being, uh, if I could find, you know, to, you would say to some young person, if you could find a way to ever find quasi-random, you know, I, I don't know mm -hmm. in this case, but it would be extremely valuable, given that so many people can only hear those kinds of answers. Yeah, so I mean, some people have done that when it comes to race because uh, Sandy Darity and some others have done this colorism thing. Yep, they, right. They, I think, missed the opportunity to understand that while they think it's colorism, Mm -hmm. It really is a chance to think about this as a random experiment right. because what's really happening is I'm yeah. getting a group of people who are fuzzy. Yep. Someone looks at yeah. someone looks at them and they're not quite, quite sure. sure. So two people look at them and come to different conclusions. Yes. Yeah. And so the fact that someone who is very light-skinned mm. gets a favorable outcome, I don't think is so much that they're being favorite because they're light-skinned. I think they are running into more instances where in the moment I got to make up my mind about something, I don't know, yeah. there, there are more people going, I don't know what he is. Yeah, the, my, the, my advisor, Chris Cornwell at the mm -hmm. University of Georgia, 
apparently in these there's a Brazilian data set that he used yes. and uh, going between firms, the racial switch. Right. And it's some sort of passing phenomenon. Yes, and exactly. They identified wage, uh, you know, wage differences for those people. When they are passing, apparently their wage uh, is higher. Yes. And you've got some switching, you know, to fit that Don Rubin thing, mm -hmm. you know, th so it's not impossible. It does require very, you know, I don't know if we have to replicate that experiment too many times for it to be believable, you know, but there is a lot of value to, uh, if only just because some people, they can no longer hear without those kinds of things and, you know. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's also hard because those experiments help you to understand that, that what we're talking about is possible. But the general equilibrium effects mm. get missed. So when you bring it to scale, right, I've created a different world. So a world in which I have these hard race lines is a different world. The world in which unions can function is a different world. And, and especially, I use unions because it's, it's, it's way clearer, right? When there are unions, there's a credible threat that protects all workers. Right. So the general equilibrium difference between the 35% union density and the current 7%, yeah. it's kind of hard. I mean, economists do this now where they say, uh, I can do a regression discontinuity where you know it's a close union election and yeah. it could have been either way. Like, mm. that doesn't totally capture the union effect. Right, because uh, it's just that local average. I it, mean, yeah, it's that local average treatment effect in the first place. Yes, right. and, so, and so that gives me a clue that yes, unions matter. Right. They definitely matter. Right. Um, and even the work that um, Suresh and I do and some of the others that he's worked with, um, you know, have been able to document that unions used to organize a higher share of low-skilled workers, and those low-skilled workers used to get much higher wages yeah. back then. It still doesn't get you all of the things unions do. I mean, what we have found, a uh, low union density state, spends less on K-12 education, mm -hmm. less likely to have workers who have health insurance, more likely to lock people up. There are these other dynamics that come into play, and, and so it isn't just, oh, I took away unions, and I found out in this you know, right. discontinuity study that unions wa raise wages 3%, like, <laughs> yeah. and, and only for union members. It's like, okay, but that's. Right. Well, uh, we could talk all night. I could ask you <laughs> questions all night. Yeah, uh, we got to get ready. We got to get dinner. to dinner. Yep. So uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Gotta see us soon. Honey, you need me, baby. I